Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello? Hello? <clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. Welcome to She Talks Peace a podcast that highlights the role of women peacebuilders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to their communities. Eavesdrop into their conversations and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States, their dreams and their hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, and Dina Zaman, a Malaysian journalist and co-founder of Iman Research. This is She Talks Peace. Salam, dear listeners. This is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy saying hi, good morning, good afternoon, good evening from exciting Manila. As you know, we had our elections and it was really a credible turnout for the elections. But um, many of my friends are still sad because their candidate, uh, Vice President Lenny Robredo, uh, lost the election. And it was really incredible. It was an overwhelming victory for Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the late uh, Ferdinand Marcos Sr., uh, known globally as a dictator in the Philippines who imposed martial law, and uh, his vice president, uh, Sara Duterte, the daughter of our president, uh, Rodrigo Roa Duterte. Uh, Sara is a mayor of Davao City, and has a track record in, in governance. But the two in combination, uh, Marcos being very influential in the north, especially in the area of the Ilocano uh, people, and Sara Duterte being from Mindanao and therefore very influential in Mindanao, the combination of these two huge blocks of votes, I think, gave the victory to the Marcos-Duterte tandem. And now, gossips and <laughs> political analysts are looking at who the uh, presumptive president, uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., will bring into his cabinet. But you know... Most of the columnists in my country, they're really focusing on the economic agenda. So there's speculation about who's going to be the trade secretary, the finance secretary, to quell the jitters uh, happening in our economic circles. In fact, a day after elections, when it looked like Ferdinand Marcos Jr. was uh, winning, stock prices dropped. 
So many of these um, financial analysts have gone on, have been interviewed on television, making recommendations for presumptive President Marcos Jr. to allay fears of the economic sector. What worries me, though, is that all the talk is about the economy, business, industry, and not much talk is coming up about other critical sectors of governance. Uh, for instance, just this week, the Office of the Presidential Advisor on Peace, Reconciliation, and Unity gave recognition to all of its partners from the North to the South. And I was happy to have been one of the partners that they recognized. And the message of Peace Advisor Carlitos Galvez, uh, known as Charlie, Secretary Charlie, by his friends and his admirers, his message was really for this government and the incoming government not to lose control over the support for the peace process. This is crucial. Remember, during the time of the pandemic, the violent extremists did not sleep or hide in a bunker somewhere. The recruitment continues and peace and security remains a very important um, support, an important pillar for governance. You cannot have business developments. You cannot have economic progress if the foundation for peace and security is, is weak. And you know what else is uh, important, dear listeners, that uh, it's not really being talked about? The impact, for instance, of uh, the environment and climate change on peace and security. And since this podcast is She Talks Peace, and we've been talking a lot about women, peace, and security, we need to have a conversation about the intricate combinations, the link between environment, climate change, women, peace, and security. Let me just share with you an article that was released by the Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. And this was released sometime March this year. And it says, the fields of climate change and women, peace, and security, or WPS, are often viewed as separate from one another. The sooner we acknowledge that they are inextricably linked, the sooner we can take synergistic action. And it goes on further to say that the impact of climate change are not gender neutral. You know very well that the climate crisis is the existential threat of our time. There's a lot of research, according to the Georgetown Institute for WPS, that show around the world climate change is creating an even burdens on women. Just as the impacts of conflict are not gender neutral, according to the Institute, the same is true 
of the impacts of climate change. Pre-existing vulnerabilities and patterns of discrimination rooted in structural inequalities create disproportionate impacts for women and other marginalized groups who are less able to absorb and recover from climate shocks. Then it gives an example. It says that it has been recorded that women are 14 times more likely than men to die in natural disasters. So clearly, climate change, the environment, should really be part of early conversations so that the incoming administration can put environment and climate change firmly on its agenda. What does give me some reason to be hopeful is that the presumptive vice president, Sara Duterte, when she was mayor, actually established a climate change commission in Davao City. She released, she signed an executive order September of uh, last year, creating this commission. Question is, what has the commission actually done since uh, its creation? Now, the presumptive president, Marcos Jr., has also, in his public pronouncement, said that the environment and climate change is part of his priority program. He talks about nature having its rights that should be protected, should be allowed to flourish, reproduce, and attain its abundance. He says that. And he talks about greening the Philippines, uh, throwback to his mother, First Lady Imelda Marcos's major program at the time about the greening uh, the Philippines. The best person to make sense of all of this rhetoric and tell us about what the incoming administration should have as priority agenda for climate change and the environment is our guest, Maria Paz Luna, better known as Ipat to her friends, has been engaged in environmental law and policy practice for three decades now. Although looking at her, you wouldn't think that she'd been practicing law for three decades. She has managed several foundations and organizations for the conservation of the environment. She has built local consensus on important policy decisions affecting natural resources and habitats, particularly in protected areas, and she has published a lot of works in these fields. She has also helped to craft numerous public health policies. Before joining government in 2016, she became undersecretary in the Department of Environment and Natural Resources. She was executive trustee of Pusod Inc., a consultant for Resources and Economics Foundation of the Philippines and a member of the Environmental Law Alliance worldwide. And luckily, she has access to the legislative group because she was detailed in 2019 
to the office of then Deputy Speaker Loren Legarda, who is returning to the Senate and who will most likely again take on the environment portfolio in the Senate. Ipat is currently the chief of party of the INSPIRE project of the Jerry Rojas Foundation that will be giving grants and establishing a conservation academy in the next five years. Ooh, that sounds like fun. Hi, Ipat. Welcome to She Talks Peace. Hi, Amina. I'm so very happy to be here. Uh, these uh, intricacies of the issues that uh, intersect is such a rich topic of conversation. I know, especially since you have put up a little sanctuary near Taal, near, near Taal Lake in Mataas na Kahoy, is it? Yes, the town of Mataas na Kahoy. This is the, my background is our sunset view. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that sanctuary that you put up. Because I know you're a native tree enthusiast, a bird watcher, and a trained rescue diver. <laughs> Is that part of the reason why you put up that sanctuary near Taal Lake? No, it was going to be, um, we rent in Manila, so it was just going to be our house. But so many people wanted to see the lake and, you know, you reduce your ecological footprint if you double up the uses of properties. So it's not just a rest house that is private. We allowed people to go in so that we can share ecological practices with them. So we have an earth house that we let people use so that they can see that earth walls are more temperature controlled, uh, a little cooler in the summertime, those kinds of things. We have demonstrations of uh, native trees all around the property. So in a 1,500 square meter lot, we have probably 50 different kinds of native trees growing. So it feels a little bit like a forest, but that calms the nerves for most people that visit us. Yeah, but what do you mean earth walls? You mean you, ma you make it out of soil? Yes, that is a technology that was shared to us by our friend from Mindanao, Bo Bakongis, who lives in Bukidnon. It uses what usually is used in disaster situations like sacks and barbed wire. So mm. usually those are in disaster situations already. And if you secure those, you just put soil in the sacks and then put them on top of each other like a beehive, sort of. The structure is a dome so that it is earthquake and typhoon resistant and it's temperature controlled. And it uses local materials only. It doesn't use concrete, which is, I feel, not a very ecologically sound material to be using for the houses of 110 million people. Wow, it sounds like you have a hobbit house. <laughs> you create yes, actually, your own hobbit house in near Taal Lake. <laughs> it's a tiny dome that actually is for rent. So many people have already experienced it because you need to experience it to know that it is actually a viable shelter. But the main house is kawayan and recycled wood and anahaw roofing. So it's really a very native type of place. And we love to show it off because it's a demonstration of environmental practices, locally sourced materials, sustainability, and low footprint. Shout out to everybody who's in the Philippines right now. If you want to have a nice little break, contact Ipat. Go and see her Hobbit house in near Taal Lake in Mataas na Kahoy. So let's talk about the serious issues, uh, Ipat. Marcos Jr., the presumptive president, 
has cited the need to institute policy reforms and programs to create a peaceful balance, he says, between economic development and the environment. And seems that when he was in the Senate, he had drafted bills. For instance, he had one bill, which isn't law, stating that climate change, the environment should be integrated into education. So if you were his advisor, or if you had access to his team, what would you say would be the top three priority programs that he should have in his administration so that we can protect our environment and, as he says, allow for the greening of the Philippines? Uh, thank you. That's a very interesting question. And uh, maybe we can enroll in a course for that. <laughs> 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 Just joking. Uh, <laughs> Well, allow me to lump together some very important things so that my three items would include a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I guess the first would be food and water security. Food security is in all levels. It's in the level of the household that can have a little garden in the back. It can yeah. give you a sense of security about the food that your family will be eating. Because if push comes to shove, no money is coming in, then you can harvest a few malungai leaves, etc. But on the level of the community, food security also means that people are not stressed out because they're not eating, and therefore the community should probably have community gardens and things like that. You, sometimes peace is in Tagalog, it's tahimik, but right. I think the better translation is panatag, a, yes. a type of security that is not born out of fear or born out of self-censorship or any kind of quieting that is not bukal sa dibdib. Sorry, uh, I know we have an international audience that is uh, straight from the heart. That's what I meant. So food and water security is one. And for water specifically, we are losing our water bodies, especially in urban areas. Because oh we God, have hardly, yeah. Yeah. hardly any investment in water treatment. Our rivers are dead, our lakes are dying because water treatment is such a low priority in our public infrastructure. I don't even know in the Build, Build, Build project if there are any, uh, because we rely on the concessionaires to build this as if it's not as important as highways yeah. and bridges. So I think food and water security is top notch and that also includes forest restoration because water will not be here if our forests are lost. The plants are the ones that... So the watersheds are important for the supply of water, but they're all the, the bodies of water that act as the drainage and catch basin yeah. are also important in order to ensure the climate moderation. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. While we're in the topic of food and water security and the protection of watersheds, you know Ann Dumaliang, right? Yes, I do. And uh, one of the problems they have, because their foundation is protecting a sanctuary, Yes. in Baras uh, Rizal province. And they say that, that in the sanctuary, within the sanctuary, there have been illegal incursions and very influential people have actually been putting up resorts within the sanctuary. So, you know, if you were within the Department of Environment and Natural Resources, IPAT, what should they be doing to stop this this incursion? Well, that's a very interesting case, Amina, and I've dealt with both inside the department as well as Blue Star and Masumi Georeserve Foundation. And I think there are solutions to be had because I've never seen a better managed tourism area than Masumi. Uh, but at the same time, the agreement that covers what they're supposed to take care of is 2,000 hectares. And there are legal kinks in, in those agreements. Lands issues are very, very complicated. And part of that 2,000 hectares was actually A and D. So there has to be a determination. I, I hate to make uh, judgments because I... I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I, I cannot say mm-hmm. uh, one is the right right and not the other when I don't have the specific facts about the specific right. lots involved. But apparently there are A and D portions of the 2,000 hectares that are already uh, prescribed as private titles. So it needs to be each one. No? In certain other areas in the 2,000 hectares, it's protected area. So quarries are really not allowed inside protected areas, but yeah. the quarry preceded the establishment of the protected area. So unless the DNR and Masumi sit down for common games and resume their trust with each other, Mm. I think it's going to be very difficult to resolve these situations. It's really a matter of trust like everything. (laughs) Uh, All peace activities has to include the increase of the level of trust and that needs to be built. It cannot just be demanded. Let's just hope that whoever is the incoming Secretary for Environment and Natural Resources is going to do something to protect this all two crucial watersheds. Okay, so that's food and water security. What's the next priority agenda? I have to say the second is a reorganization of the department because Ah. (laughs) uh, it's schizophrenic. It's in charge of extractive activities and its uh, environmental management bureau is in charge of constituting the only bar against destruction, but the law regarding environmental impact assessment as well as the power of the EMB are hardly enough to uh, prevent the destruction from extractive activities, from development, so to speak. So there needs to really be a clear way forward to reorganize the department in order to remove this, this schizophrenia and yeah. pave the way for a solid department that protects the environment as its main and clear mandate without having to think about what about the industry, what about it. These industries might be better off in another department. Uh, and then DNR will just look at the environmental impacts. Yeah, like DTI. Yes. 
So you're you're thinking a very powerful environmental protection agency like what they have in the United States? Yes, yes. That something that can really prevent destruction even by the other agencies. One example is uh, how can EMB, which is within the DNR, with a very small budget, cross the projects of the DPWH. DNR as a whole has. 27 billion while DPWH has 800 billion a year. Mm. So its its budget is 27 times that of the DNR. Yeah. Uh, so whenever DPWH has projects, it's very difficult to DN, uh, for DNR to cross whatever is already within the budget stream. Uh, even if they think it might be iffy on the environmental front. So That needs to be resolved as well. How we can ensure that there is a consideration, there is sufficient consideration on biodiversity or ecosystems that may be forever lost if we just mitigate impacts rather than clearly draw the line so that we can save these ecosystems. You know, Ipat, my mom was in the Senate for two terms, and even then, early nineties. There were already debates about splitting the NR so that you would have one department for development and a separate department for protection. Yes, regulatory. There was no appetite then. Do you think there's going to be appetite now within the department to split and then uh, you know sort of check and balance each other? Is that possible? That highly depends on who will be appointed the secretary and the support yeah. of the presumptive uh, president, I suppose, because uh, it just makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. A lot of the budget of DNR is in lands, which is mapping and surveying, mm-hmm. and that can be part of the. There's a LARA bill, for example, that can be part of the registration system. It's not technically environmental if the law already says clearly what is supposed to be registrable and what is supposed to not be registrable. It's really a mishmash: lands registration, uh, well, mapping and surveying of the lands, and registration is in another agency. So there needs to be an organizational assessment in the DNR so that it can really be rationalized. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> so, what's the third priority agenda? Well, the third is, of course, global, and it's climate change. It yes. uh, it affects. Uh, it, it's of course it's an existential threat. It affects. Nearly every aspect of our lives, and I feel so sad that even these glitches in our political life cannot make me as sad as the fact that people are not paying attention to the issue of climate change. It's as if we will be living forever without the threats posed by these disasters, uh, disease vectors out going out of control because ecosystems are changing so rapidly. Sea level rise; these are going to affect our lifetimes already. And if it's not within the national conversation, or if it's in the national conversation, but we continue to give it lip service, then we are bound to experience these disasters unprepared. We need to make plans in order to ensure that the highly populated cities, in the way of sea level rise, will have options, and there will not be. Panic or huge disruptions in the economy, but these are not the plans that we are making. I'm so afraid of lip service because it calms people down that we are talking about climate change. But last Congress they declared a climate emergency, but mm-hmm. the laws they passed do not match the fact <laughs> that there is a climate emergency. Uh, so 
it's just uh, especially the revival of thing of the mining consortium uh, yeah. uh, mining moratorium sorry the lifting of the mining moratorium climate change is upon us we have to think 30 years ahead 20 years ahead to see what will happen to these ecosystems and the only way to do that is to step back first and uh, assess we don't even have the data of what will happen to these ecosystems much of it will have to remain guesswork if we don't research properly and if we don't make the projections in digital or other ways. But if we're not studying it, we're not going to be able to prepare. Yeah, I get what you're saying. But with uh, regards to the mining industry, many of my friends who are supporters who are uh, with the mining industry always say that the threat really is in the unregulated irresponsible mining because the major mining companies do take the environment very seriously so what do you say to those within the mining sector who call for responsible mining i agree partly because especially small-scale mining it's very very hard to regulate because of the sheer volume of the small-scale mining industry but at the same time uh, our laws, uh, the 1995 law that governs the mining industry, is also highly skewed. I mean, there are very small penalties and they can say they are compliant, but they only pay the penalty 20,000 pesos, 5,000 pesos. <laughs> and while there were things in the mining audit that Gina Lopez undertook that I also disagreed with, especially the timing and especially some of the decisions, I think that uh, audit should just have been more open and transparent to people so people could see the specific violations and see what the penalties were because if they are compliant but the penalties are so small how often will they be paying the penalties and how much disincentive will that be to compliance 20,000 um, <laughs> there are those and what happens is that they just ask for time to comply. So the period yeah. in which they were non-compliant, it's just, it's gone forever. Right. Um, so yes, there are compliant companies, but our law is not sufficient as yet to ensure that compliance means protection. For example, you cannot take back an open pit mine. Once an open pit mine is dug, that ecosystem yeah. is lost. Mm -hmm. uh, there is almost no way to bring it back to its former glory. So I agreed with the mining, uh, with the open pit mining ban that was the legacy of Gina Lopez, but it was just recently overturned also. I think if the mining companies can prove that they can restore to its former glory, then we can say that, okay, fine, it's okay to have open pit mines. But there are other mining methods that can work. So it's really not a sufficient regulatory climate that will ensure the protection of our very, very sensitive and smaller and smaller ecosystems that are still pristine. So you have laws with no teeth. I mean, how, uh, how can a penalty of 20,000 pesos or that that's what, 400 American dollars? How, <laughs> yes. how is that going to stop them from doing anything? You know, but you went to Tawi-Tawi once, right? Looking at, times. At, at the mining. Uh, oh, not to look there. at the mining. And were, I'm sorry. And were disappearing islands. You I know, mean, that breaks my heart because uh, not I haven't been there recently to look at the mining. I was there to help the local government undertake a, an environmental code for the province. 
And at the time, we already placed reserves so that mining or logging cannot touch those specific reserves anymore. But again, it's in the implementation. And uh, I'm not sure what happened after that. That's when policy becomes lip service as well if, if it's not implemented. I'm not making judgments on the province of Tawi-Tawi. It's just that uh, the mining activities I heard then apparently were overlapping with some of these protected sites, which were identified as biologically rich areas in the draft of the provincial ordinance. And Tawi-Tawi is very, very special because of the evolutionary story of Tawi-Tawi. It's been an island for a very long time. So the evolution in Tawi-Tawi is yes. unparalleled. It has engendered species that are not found anywhere else anywhere. in the country or the planet. Yeah. This is the thing. Even if the province of Tawi-Tawi or the new regional government, the Bangsamoro Autonomous uh, Regional Government, can create its own environmental code, what can they possibly do when the owners of the mining corporations are very powerful people from Manila and they're in partnership with countries like China? I was, I was telling you about the disappearing island and my family and friends from Tawi-Tawi have been complaining about this for so many years already that they just take the soil, put them on the boat. Yes. The soil, yeah, the soil is brought to China. So they are paying us for soil, which is destroying the environment, making the, dis you know, the island disappear, and we're not even getting the value of the minerals that are in that soil. How short-sighted is that? But one of the peculiarities of Tawi-Tawi is the fact that it is part of an autonomous regional government. So the National Department of Environment and Natural Resources really cannot uh, dictate to them but how, if the locals want to protect their environment, how do they maneuver when the ones who are behind the mining are very powerful? And this is similar to what I think Anna Dumaliang is also facing in um, Masungi. If you were an ordinary Filipino and you really cared deeply about the air you breathe, the water you drink, or the lack of it, what would you want potential environmentalists, what do you think they should be doing so that they could make the incoming administration pay more attention to these existential threats to our nation? You know, national administration would always look at bottom lines for the national coffers. So I think it is up to the locals to defend their territories, to defend their ecosystems, because that's what will give them food and water security. It has happened that local governments in other areas have passed bans against open pit mines. That ban in South Cotabato, for example, was just recently overturned. So oh. there's no longer a ban. But the winning councillors for the next administration are, I think, against the mining in South Cotabato. So whether they will overturn the overturning of the ban, uh, we will see. But the point is that the struggle is in the local area. For as long as the local residents are strong enough to resist, they can pass legislation to prevent 
the destructive activities in their areas. And thankfully, these are legal battles. They're not yet violent uh, wars. No, they're legal battles because if you have an ordinance, and this is even better for BARM because you can, because as an autonomous region, it might be uh, perceived to be a higher level of authority over the resources than a province within the uh, whole nation. But certainly, local solidarity and unity to protect resources can work even in the legal arena, even against high-level investments that might impact food and water security. As a matter of fact, South Cotabato was going against the biggest foreign direct investment of this country, but they managed to pass that ordinance, you know, a handful of councillors in a province. And I think that shows that you can constitute a defense mechanism if the local community understands what will happen to them and if the local community supports local decision makers and policy makers that will constitute that fence to protect their food and water security. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. But maybe you should have helped create a real party list for the environment. Because it seems to me that we are going to have a lot of problems with uh, getting legislation pushed that will really protect the environment. But you you mentioned much, much earlier on when you were chatting uh, about uh, how our contribution really to global warming isn't that great. And yet the impact on us is remarkable. I think of countries like the Maldives, for instance, Absolutely nothing to do with climate change, and yet they're disappearing. Now, you're with a global network of uh, lawyers uh, who deal with the environment. What is it that they're doing, and are you optimistic that they're going to be able to make some changes with the policy of the most powerful governments, like the United States, for instance, major contributor to global warming? So is there anything that can be done by this uh, network that you're with, the environmental law worldwide? Oh, worldwide. Yes. Yeah. There are legal measures already being undertaken. Very exciting that in the Philippines just a week ago, the Commission on Human Rights came out with its resolution of a case filed before it against the carbon majors. These are the biggest companies that have produced most of the carbon that is causing climate change and released it into the atmosphere through usage by the world. But they are the ones that produced and uh, extracted the oil and the petroleum from, from the petroleum deposits. So these carbon majors are being called to account for their contribution to the situation that the Philippines finds itself in. And this is one of the first times that this is considered a human right, the, the right to security against climate threats. It's a human right. In this resolution recently came out, that recently came out of the CHR of the Philippines. And I think uh, everybody should look at that resolution. 
and download a copy of that from the CHR website. It's very interesting to see how they were able to say that everything is interconnected and climate uh, security against climate threats is a human right. The other thing, of course, is multiple cases filed by youth and children's organizations against their own countries for failing to address uh, the impacts of climate change. But that's and really interesting. Yes. What, youth and children are filing yes. lawsuits? Like where and what? Uh, multiple. This is already a global movement of lawyers representing young people. One of the first wins was in the Netherlands, uh, mm -hmm. where the courts recognized the right to uh, climate security and therefore gave standing to the children, trying to get their governments to account for their actions on climate. And then it's been followed by multiple cases filed around the world following the example of that case. It's exciting because it's really the children that will suffer the consequences yeah. of the decisions we make today. And it's highlighted very starkly in those cases uh, because the children, Greta, for example, mm -hmm. uh, is one of the children that have been banging on doors in order yeah. for politicians to listen. This is why I really think that a lip service on climate is as much a crime as failing yeah. to address the crisis because it calms people down. We have a commission, we have a committee, uh, we're doing something, but ultimately, is it sufficient? Will it actually prevent, uh, will it reduce our vulnerability? Will it prevent the types of disasters that we are seeing that will happen if we do not drastically make reductions in our emissions? And the IPCC came out with another grim scenario for the world. If we are unable to make these drastic changes, we have a small window of opportunity. And as you say, it's the women that face these impacts first. And as I say, it's the women's feelings of security are yeah. threatened. And that's not really peaceful, no matter how you cut it. 14 times more likely to die when there's a, a natural... Uh, disaster. You know, but I've got three children and they grew up to be very, very strong on the environment. And we had been talking for the longest time about like what you did, buying a piece of property and by, by Taal Lake. So we were thinking about buying a small piece of property by a beach, say in Zambales. They refused to absolutely. Because they said, mom, climate change, that the property is going to disappear. So let's buy up in the mountain. <laughs> let's go to Baguio. <laughs> so they're, they're open to Taal because, you know, it's, it's up there. But can you imagine this? Um, when I was growing up, we had, we never thought about anything like that. And now here are my children. And they're stressing because they're worried about their country actually disappearing all because of, of climate change. And the worst part is they are not so optimistic that government is really going to do something to protect their lives. It's a, they look at government sometimes and they think that it's transactional, all short term. Uh, you make a promise and then make another promise in uh, the next election cycle. So I'm just uh, really wondering 
what it is we can do to give our young people hope. Like, for instance, this conservation academy that you're supposed to be putting up with the INSPIRE project. What is a conservation academy? The INSPIRE project, a grant-making facility that will support civil society organizations in assisting and getting government accountable for its work and decisions on ecosystem resilience. And, oh, so my uh, children can help you with that then. Thank you. They yes. want to lobby. Okay. <laughs> These are grants that are also hopefully allowing CSOs, civil society organizations, to level up by working in bioregions, by working in larger landscapes affecting bioregional plants. Because frequently environmental uh, projects are small scale, they are mm -hmm. for the protection of a certain ecosystem. But once the development uh, runs rampant and decisions are made, then there's going to be a dam, there's going to be a road, there's going to be um, all sorts of things that affect the small scale projects. So we really need to level up these efforts to protect larger landscapes, to protect bioregions. That is why we also need a conservation academy to enhance the skills of people in doing this work. For so long, it's been preaching to the crowd, uh, environmentalists talking to each other about saving this little piece of land, saving that little parcel, when in fact the threats are large scale. As you said earlier, it's national level, it's the powers that be. Um, and if locals gather together, form consortiums that look squarely at their development models, their development paradigms, they're the ones that will constitute a defense mechanism against development projects and development directions that will threaten food and water security, that will threaten ecosystems, that will reduce the resilience of these ecosystems that will protect them in the future. So um, you're looking at the province of Tawi-Tawi, I suppose. Well, we divided the Philippines into 30 bioregions where culture and political alignments can uh, work together within mm -hmm. that bioregion uh, so that its development direction can be determined. So it would have to be the entire archipelago, not just uh -huh. Tawi-Tawi. So anybody asking for uh, funds and joining the Conservation Academy to sharpen skills in order to protect these bioregions We'll have to be familiar not only with the bioregions, a bioregion itself, but also with the population there and the political landscape that decides the fate of the bioregion. So it's very challenging because there's hardly any time the climate emergency is here. There's no time to dilly dally. That's why if we don't work hard and fast, if we don't work tough, then we have an eight year window and we won't be able to save these ecosystems. Let's hope that the next six years with incoming President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. and incoming Vice President Sara Duterte, we'll see some positive milestones. After all, they did promise that they were going to do something. And Ferdinand Marcos Jr.'s uh, mother, Imelda Marcos, uh, loved the idea of greening. I mean, you, you were a kid during that period of time, right? It probably were like first grade or something. And what I remember is that in public schools, for instance, school children were encouraged to actually plant pechai and kangkong because it was part of the greening movement. So you have a mother like that. Who knows? Maybe there's some 
possibilities that the Marcos Duterte administration will do something a little bit more proactive about the environment with your three-pronged agenda on environment and climate change. You hopefully, but we can only hope if we work. You I hope think, uh, <laughs> we can only hope you if hope. Uh, we actually do something to keep that hope alive. And unless we are working, then I think hope will die because there's nothing to feed the hope if you do not work towards that hope. And so actually now we still have Gulayan sa Paaralan that has been revived uh, again and again. But not all initiatives that are green and planting are correct. That's why we have a conservation academy. There were initiatives throughout since the, the 1900s uh, of tree planting and greening. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I remember. <laughs> there's a lot of wasted money, uh, lots of wrong species planted, species that destroy the soil. Actually, soil is probably the biggest strategic intervention, reviving the soil, soil mm. restoration is the biggest strategic intervention for the climate emergency because it is all over the terrestrial yeah. environment and even agriculture is affected by this. If we revive the soil, if we uh, ensure that the microbial communities in the soil uh, produce enough so that we can have intensive agriculture in smaller and smaller parcels of land, we can survive the climate crisis and many works and even movies have been uh, made to show that soil is the most strategic intervention. Yeah. And for the Philippines in particular, the types of fertilizer and pesticides that have been applied that have deadened the soil, making them biodiversity dead zones, they can be revived uh, with simple things like dung and composting, uh, uh, wood chips and yeah. Uh, yep, compost, yep. those are things that are within our uh, capacity to produce, but instead we are treating land as space yeah. where you input something and you harvest something That's else. Right. It's, That's it's right. not space, it's a living ecosystem. And the higher the life in that ecosystem, the more produce it can give you. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I'm, I'm, I've been trying my hand at gardening. And yeah, but except I don't have a real space for composting. It's my daughter. She found this Bokashi tile. So very. I'm so glad you practice it. <laughs> but she's the one. You see, my, these are my children, the, the environmentalists, and they're the ones who are making me try different things. But, but before we leave the, the topic about, in a way, stupid government programs. Have you noticed all of these plants that they've been sticking on these little pla uh, plastic planters on the highways and they keep dying every three months? And every time I pass by, I always tell myself, I'm going to write about it and post it, but they keep forgetting. But it's the most ridiculous thing because, you know, you put these plants which somebody obviously bought and it keeps dying after a month, then you plant it again. So I kept thinking, why don't they just grow Dama de Noche or Cadena de Amor? Weeds. <laughs> Weeds that cadena. constitute biomass. Exactly. Yes. And you see Cadena de Amor, they just grow wild everywhere and they're so pretty. Yes. But Even the uh, Espada behind you like that. <laughs> yeah. That's so easy to maintain. Yeah. yeah but so you know, many, it, so many it's things really that in the beginning. Done of the project when they yeah. built the road it didn't have 
soft infrastructure built in. So they had to come up with something to soften or deaden the noise, the pollution sticking on the walls. It's a, an end of pipe solution. If it were integrated in the planning to begin with, as actually our, our laws require that mm. our plans should integrate biodiversity, even in the GAA, uh, GAA, it says you have to integrate biodiversity and that includes biodiversity of the soil. They're dying because the soil in the small pot, its nutrients get depleted and it doesn't have enough moisture and it's just in that small pot. But if you look at the ones under the bridges where they're growing on yes. soil, they're very, they're very alive. Yes. You don't have to worry about them. They just keep growing. Yes. Uh, and actually, if you compost the, the biodegradable material of the households right next to that street and put them there, there'll be even more, uh, alive. If you use that compost and use it for the plastic pots, maybe they'll be thriving more. But the point is we have to put the biodiversity consideration and the beautification agenda yeah. right at the beginning of the plan, right. not at the end of it. If we do that, then, for example, the Skyway Stage 3, that mm -hmm. could have used a lot of plant material. <laughs> that true. could have used boxes, even just small boxes, because even Bungambilia can grow pretty wild and shady. If very hardy. In a small box, yes. Yeah, very, um, very hardy. But it's not in the plans. If we are really looking at a climate emergency, if our policies, each of our policies, all of them can be tagged to show that it is a climate emergency, we have to increase biomass that will absorb carbon, then we are on our way to get over a climate emergency. We will decrease our vulnerability and we will have a more chill environment because plants create vapor and they cool the environment. So it's just a no-brainer for us to make these tiny decisions in the planning that will get ahead of the problem instead of have to be solved at the end of it. Inshallah, Ipat. This has been a, a really educational and, and fun discussion with you, Ipat. Thanks for joining joining us. But before we go, maybe you have some words of inspiration to especially the young people who are, are listening to She Talks Peace. And let me tell you, we've got about 10% of our audience is like 18 and under. So maybe give them your inspiration about what they can do to protect the environment and help with, with climate change. Well, the earth will be here for a very, very long time to come. But our place in it is in danger. That danger can pass if we are strategic and if we are decisive enough. And the older generation, they're used to just going on and uh, you know, uh, continuing what they've been used to. But the younger generation is my hope. I really rely on these cases that were filed by the younger people. Uh, against their own governments. I rely on people like Greta Thunberg to get more uptake from populations of countries to take up climate change and get more drastic action. I rely on the inventiveness of uh, younger people to create the solutions necessary on the ground. No? Uh, Bokashi, if we just use it all over the country, can fertilize so much of our soils. You just have to learn it. It's it's uh, not very hard. It's just the oxygenated composting. And it doesn't <laughs> take that much space. No, it doesn't. Um, so if we only take 
individual action, community action, and our our young people they're they're starting to not buy cars. Even mm -hmm. middle class people, parang it doesn't it doesn't make sense anymore with the traffic, with the price of gas, with the price of tolls. They are the ones that are realizing. Some people are not even thinking of having children because they don't want their children to uh, suffer the indignities of a climate disaster. That's honorable, but it's also very sad. But it's them that know and it's them that are able to project better. And I look forward to a time when they will take over the reins of government and they will make the drastic decisions necessary to get us out of this rut. We old people, we have to listen to them and we have to make decisions in their behalf at this point while we are still the ones making decisions. As the Tagalogs would say, and as Muslims, inshallah, I hope that your dream becomes a reality. So to our dear listeners, do help Ipat Luna and me make this dream a reality. If not just for us today, but really for our children and our children's children. And maybe if there is some... Um, a positive trend towards making this dream a reality, then maybe there will be more younger people who will consider having children because they can see a way forward to a safer country, a more peaceful life where they can actually breathe. And right now, Ipat, we're having difficulty breathing with the pollution that, that we're experiencing. So thank you so much, Ipat. God bless. And I hope that uh, your work with Ilaw is going to move uh, mountains here in our country and help protect Tawi-Tawi from losing more of its islands. <laughs> so... It's been a great honor to answer your questions, Amina. They have also uh, allowed me to ponder some of these questions more deeply. <laughs> so, dear friends, uh, thanks for joining us on She Talks Peace. This is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, wishing all of you all the best, and may you be able to breathe peacefully. Bye! She Talks Peace is brought to you in partnership with Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics, the easiest way to monetize your podcast. For more information, check out their website at podcastnetwork.asia and podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia the hosts of the program or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.